Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Hey, it's Thursday at 4.20 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroyo's weekly session for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. I'm your co-moderator, Keisha. Mandy, it's our last episode of 2022. Can you believe it? Oh, my gosh. Episode 49, the last of the year. Oh, oh my gosh. What a crazy year it was. Yeah, no, uh, we're also going live over on YouTube shortly. Um, so yeah, whether you're here live with us or you're over there, make sure you send us your questions. Um, also, if you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all of the platforms. So that's Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and now Social Club. But we have a ton of questions from the last few weeks from you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and throw it back over to Keisha. Awesome, Mandy. Thank you so much. And uh, just a reminder, those of us who are live with us, if you have a question, we're going to tackle your questions first. So feel free to uh, type those in the chat at any time. And if it, your question gets picked, we'll either have you un unmute yourself or I can ask for you. Jason, how you doing? Looking like you're on the holiday spirit over there. Thanks. Yeah, I'm doing my best. We got some <laughs> wonderful decorations. Thanks to Mandy and just happy, uh, happy we're closing out the, good, the year on a good note. For real. Yeah. The sweater is dope. Mandy, love that reef, W-R-E-E-F in the background. We are in the holiday spirit over there. And uh, let's get started. Ready to kick off with our first question? Let's get it going. All right. Cold in the D wrote in with a question here. They wrote, I have Arroya and I've recently integrated with Metric. How do I create a harvest batch? Maybe give us a little overview on that. Sure. And as usual, I'm better with the visuals. Let me just jump in and see if I can't share my screen and, and get you to ride along with us. All right. So it starts off kind of similar to how you would be using it if you weren't metric integrated. Um, but a few things that you will want to start to do before you even actually build the harvest group. First off is we need to know what Arroyo uh, or what metric tags that you have. And so you can import those into Arroyo. We have two options to do that. You can do it with a CSV export from metric. It's pretty easy. You just go up in the menu items there and download uh, your available tags list. In this case, we're going to say uh, add new. So in this remaining unused tags section right there, we're going to say add new. And we can either put the first serial number of the roll right there and the, tell us how many is on the roll. Or you can also just use a, a file upload. And this is that CSV that I was talking about from metric. So do that first and that'll make sure that we know what tags uh, you've been shipped and you can use to attribute your plants and packages. Uh, right here, it looks like we've got 200 unused tags, which is great. That number should always be the same number that you have of unused tags uh, available at the facility. And we'll jump in and make the harvest group. So in this case, we'll go to our production tab, just like any harvest group. We're gonna say create new group. Uh, in this case, it's gonna have any of the unsaved or incomplete uh, unfinished harvest groups. There you go. And you can either resume those or you can start with a brand new group. <clears throat> For this demonstration, we'll start a brand new group. Uh, we're going to get it started today. And the grow recipe is 
just like any other Arroyo recipe where it's outlining the different phases and the different um, parameters, target ranges, tasking, any of that type of stuff, light, um, light schedules, and in the future here, irrigations for the different phases and stages of the plant life cycle. So let's actually use just a example that has prop veg and flour and dry in it. If you use one uh, recipe that's just for flour, it's going to ask you only for the flower room and it's going to have you select existing um, clones to add to that group. In this case, we're going to start fresh and pretend like we're building it from uh, from moms. And so our propagation, let's go to prop, veg, flower. We can go to, we'll go to flower three for good luck. And then our dry room, we'll go to dry one. And we're starting this harvest group today. Let's say we're going to go take some cuttings and we need to make sure this is registered in compliance. I'm going to say add plants. And on the left side here, this is you know one of the most important pages. This is where we're selecting the mothers that we're taking the cuttings from. Uh, a couple ways that you can select those mothers. My favorite way is just by scanning the mom tag. And you can use RFID scanner or you can use a barcode scanner. Another way would be to type in the last four or six digits and just verify that that matches the rest of them. So in this case, I'm going to type in eight... 306. Well, let's use the one that's on top, 8304. If you don't type anything in, you can also just use this selection and look through the list of which uh, mothers are available. So if you know the mother, let's make some ice cream sherbet. And in this case, we'll use our 18250. And let's say we make 50 clones from that mom. And we want to use this tag or excuse me, this is the tag that we're going to use for the clone lot. Again, you can scan it. You can also use the last digits of it. Um, so if we use 675 for this lot, we can select that 675. And let's make 50 of those. And while we're at it, maybe we need, you know, 200 of these ice cream sherbets. And we'll select the next mom that we're taking a cut from. Obviously, we're going to type in the number that we are assigning for the clone lot and 50. Great. Now I know I've got 200 cuts, uh, 200 clone cuts that are going to be registered into the system and we can go to the next step plan room so you can see basics was the last screen that we went through add plants is the screen that we're on now and plan rooms is going to allow us just to give some more information about where these plants are going so propagation let's just use zone one for all of my plants in this case and you can do um you know mixed cultivar lots as well obviously anytime that you're monocropping things are going to be a little bit easier to steer um but if you had multiple strains in multiple zones you can select which zones those strains are going into looks like zone one's already used let's see if we can use zone four yeah and this is a demo system, so there might be a few things here that aren't real happy. We always uh, really recommend that people do use the zone features in 
Arroyo because that's what's going to help attribute your substrate data to the specific cultivars that you have. And that way you could build a, a more detailed record. Sure, if we had a, a bunch of uh, substrate sensors in a room and we were getting information, we could attribute that all as an average. But if you detail it in here, then you can start to actually track the different performance of areas in the room and or different uh, performance of the plants in the room. And it's going to say all set up. Great. So we can see the harvest group name. We can see how many plants that we're starting into uh, clone lots. And then we'll see the uh, workflow of this plant life cycle. So we're going to be in clone for 14 days, veg for 14, early flower. Then we're going to hit some vegetative steering and then some ripening generative and finish off with that dry cycle for a total of six phases, 105 days. Plan to finish date on 3-30-23. We'll say finish. Up in the top right, we can see save succeeded. Now we can start to look at what this um, harvest group is going to be like. And we can also check into production and just verify everything looks good. Cool. Ice cream sherbet. No action items right now. When we do uh, begin to uh, break those out, we'll have other options like advanced to veg tag plants and then towards the end of harvest we'll have harvest uh, plants and so tag plants this is going to be um, making individual serial numbers from your clone lots you can select your clone lots this is a different harvest group that i have very similar process we're going to say hey let's use the starting id how many of these plants are we actually turning into uh, viable flower plants and then we can say create sequence, record it on the right, and that's going to start building out uh, individual tags as you put them on the plants. It's always best usually to use sequential tags if you can. If you can't, obviously you can do a quick audit with a barcode scanner or RFID scanner. And then when you get towards the end of uh, flower, obviously you're going to have harvest plants. This is where you can enter your plant weights. We've got two options. You can obviously scan plants or weigh plants individually. Um, traditionally, some markets require you to have a weight per plant. In this case, definitely best to use your RFID scanner and uh, compatible, preferably Arroyo scale. Scan the plant tag with your RFID scanner, weigh the plant, and when it stabilizes, it's gonna automatically push. So we call this our touch touchless harvesting uh, system simply because you don't ever actually need to touch the computer until you're done harvesting and you want to review and finish. In this case, you just scan the plant. It'll select the tag when you scan it, throw it on the, the scale, and it'll push through all of this without touching the computer. So that is kind of the, the quick and dirty on how to build a harvest group, uh, how to transfer your harvest group into different rooms and into different stages, and then finally harvesting that group of plants as well. Amazing. Jason, thank you so much for that. Um, do you mind just reminding our visitors where metric integration is currently available through Arroyo? Yes, it is available in California, Michigan, um, Massachusetts, Nevada, I think we got Arizona done, Colorado, 
uh, I'd have to look at, get the, the list in front of me for, for the, any of the rest of them, but I know that's, that's where we're at. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we're going to keep this moving. I we think we got some YouTube questions, right, Mandy? Yeah, you know, we did. Um, so yeah, we got a couple questions in iron armor wrote in, we just recently switched from switched our bedroom to led from CMH. I'm still having a little trouble adjusting to the LED learning curve. Uh, what are some changes I can make and things I should be watching out for? Great question. Uh, one of my favorites is to always work with people when they're upgrading to LEDs. Um, so, you know, one of the very first things to think about as well is, uh, you know, how much light intensity is those LEDs versus the, the HP or the CMH ceramic metal highlight in this case. And, what that's going to do to your plants and your environmental factors. I know we did do an episode um, at some point in time that that goes covers this very well, but we'll go just jump into the, the basics for uh, for a quick brief on it. Um, so yeah, look at light intensity. Uh, definitely get an idea of the HVAC differences that are happening. Any traditional um, HPS or CMH lights going to create a lot more heat than an uh, LED will. And so hopefully you can make some adjustments to your HVAC systems. You know, if you're completely indoor, then you can save a lot of power on uh, cooling in there. And that kind of moves right into the next uh, idea. And that is that traditionally and ideally it would be awesome to have a spectrum comparison from the manufacturer of your CMH versus your LEDs. Uh, a lot of times when people are moving from HPS as a great example, uh, the, the spectrums can be different. We're going to see a lower radiation to room temperature ratio when we move to LEDs. The simply what this means is that far red light and more infrared light that's traditionally produced by HPS is actually heat up the leaf surface as radiation. And so, you know, depending on how far off that the CMH with the spectrum is, uh, is going to mean how much you want to change your actual air temperatures in the room. And what we're shooting for is, you know, a really nice VPD. So in a veg room, typically we're looking at you know, anywhere early veg, say 0.7 to up to one towards the end of veg. And what, you know, if you do have leaf surface temperatures, you can also kind of use that to evaluate how much you want to go up in temperature. Usually when we're moving from like HPS to a, a modern LED, we'll want to up the room temp, you know, four degrees or so. Um, bedrooms usually like to be pretty warm and pretty humid, right? We're trying to kind of mimic a jungle environment to get these plants well-rooted, get their infrastructure growing and enable their, um, their eating habits, their growing habits to be as fast as possible. And so those are kind of the top three items to, to think about when you change it. Obviously, if you've got an Arroyo system and you're looking at root zone, definitely get an idea of what those transpiration rates are in the plants. If you're starting to, to eat a lot faster, then then make sure that you're keeping up with the um, nutrient and, and water capacities that, that that plant can take. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when you do move to LEDs, they might need a little bit higher EC, a little bit more feed in there as well. Typically, you can cut off a pretty good portion of your veg times if you have improved both environmental factors um, when you go to LEDs versus a more traditional type of lamp. 
Awesome. Yeah. It's been a while since we've talked about lighting, um, but that was a really good rundown. Um, Iron Armor, you'll have to let me know if we have uh, any other follow-ups with that. But moving on down our list, 505 Colt wrote in, pros and cons of cocoa versus rock wool when crop steering. Ah, uh, the age-old question, cocoa or rock wool. Uh, yeah, there's obviously, they're both probably the most popular hydroponic medias right now. And it's for very, very good reason. Uh, advantages of cocoa is it is slightly more forgiving. So it has a higher cation exchange capacity, meaning that it's less susceptible to fast changes or dynamics in um, root zone EC, just because the molecules are hanging on to the nutrients a little bit differently. Uh, it has more of a, an elbow in its uh, matrix potential curve, meaning that uh, it, and that's why it's a slightly more forgiving in most cases is our plants are going to start to feel stress before there's actually no water availability in the substrate. When we look at something like rock wool, uh, it's matrix uh, potential curve is very linear. And so we can go to almost 0% water content before we're actually have seen irrigation stress in the plant. So when we think about matrix potential, I always like to think about if I put a straw into a sponge or a, a substrate, how much vacuum would I have to apply to that straw to get water out of the substrate? And that's just like roots, right? So how much vacuum does a, a plant's roots have to apply to get the water from the substrate into the cells of the plant? And so for rock wool, it's, it's pretty easy for that plant to dry that thing almost completely out before it has a lot of cellular stress. Um, and with cocoa, a lot of times, you know, it's going to have an elbow, meaning that we might actually visually see a stress response in the plant before it, uh, it gets to an irrecoverable damage point. So that's, that's one of the reasons that when we suggest people start using rock wool is after they have all of their environmental and irrigation parameters dialed in, um, simply because you know, you're much less likely to recover from an incident with rock wool than you are with cocoa. Um, I, you know, I always like to think about it as like, you know, a Lamborghini versus a Jeep. Uh, they're both going to get us there. Uh, depends what the road looks like. If we want to choose the, the best, um, the best product for, for the trip. Uh, and then, you know, there's also other environmental factors. Um, when we compare cocoa and rock wool, it's one that usually people, uh, will tell you the information that supports the product that they like to use. So obviously rock wool is a little bit more difficult to recycle. Uh, we don't have nearly as many people that are throwing it out in their compost piles. It's something that should be disposed of or provided back to the manufacturer for recycling. Um, most of the large scale rock wool companies do provide a recycling, uh, program to, to help recover some of the environmental impacts of that. That being said, obviously that's going to include chipping, um, and other types of uh, energy use and environmental impacts, uh, with cocoa. It's very, uh, it's very easy to get rid of. I mean, it's a fantastic product. I use it in my garden very commonly. I use it for replanting house pots. It's something that you can build awesome super soil with, uh, with recycled cocoa. So if you are a, a facility that has outdoor options, definitely think about recovering some of those indoor cocoa pots for future planting uses. Uh, on the negative side, you know, obviously there is a lot of shipping 
involved. Most of the cocoa is coming from areas like Indonesia and Sri Lanka. Um, and so it's really kind of take your pick on the environmental factors. I personally, I, you know, I, I like the fact that, uh, cocoa seems like a more natural digestible product for, for me to dispose of. Um, that being said, obviously rock wool is a natural product. It's blown basalt. What they do is they superheat basalt rock and they blow it like cotton candy. Um, it's just, it's, does have some items impregnated into it. And obviously the structure of it makes it a little bit less digestible on the, the huge scale. So there's some considerations. Um, interesting. Very interesting. Do you guys want to drop your favorite substrate in the chats? I'd love to know. <laughs> and then um, one more kind of logistically I was thinking about, um, I know we've talked about this in past episodes as well is just, uh, storage. Um, you know, cocoa usually you can get as a compressed block. And so it is a little bit easier to store large quantities of that. Whereas rock wool is going to be in a, um, in a much bigger type of shape. Usually you're going to get pallets that it's at full size when it gets shipped and it is slightly more susceptible to damage. Um, you know, if we, if we drop or, or kick our pallet of, of cocoa, it's not going to impact the, um, usage of that cocoa. Whereas if we, uh, disturb the fiber in our rock wool, it can have a negative impact on how effective it is to grow in the that's super important. That would just like be the worst to be shipping it and then ruin it before you even got to plant. Um, awesome. We did have another question that came through. Um, Kevin Perez wants to know what would your recommendation? Uh, I'm gonna start over. What would your recommendation be for raising pH runoff from five point <laughs> five? Sorry, um, got another question. Five point five to six point two pH. I raise my light intensity, but soon after my runoff. But soon after, my runoff pH continued to go down. And um, they did come back with some context inputs, 2.8 EC, 6.2 pH, um, and then 1.0 to 1.3 BPD. Let me know if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does for the most part. Uh, and it sounds like you're, you're definitely in, in flower based on those uh, EC and um, VPD numbers. Um, usually when we see uh, nutrient or excuse me, a uh, pH drift, it's related to nutrient imbalances and in, in that, um, in that plant sometimes, yeah, you know, like in cocoa, we'll see it just natively rise due to the, the cocoa buffering. Some things to consider here is obviously, you know, make sure that you are getting that substrate wet up with the appropriate pH. I actually like to go in a little bit lower than my typical feed pH if I can for uh, rock wool, uh, simply because there's a wetting agent in there. Uh, it's a surfactant that allows the rock wool to wet up uh, perfectly the first time. And it's when we, it's why we talk about, uh, avoiding dry downs beyond say 35% in rock wool is after that, um, wetting agent has been pushed through it, then it doesn't necessarily have the ability to soak back up like it does from the manufacturer for original wet up. And those surfactants are usually a little bit more basic. So I'll go in at slightly less, say 0.2, 0.3 for my initial 
soak up just to try and, you know, wash any of those surfactants out and make sure it's balanced. That being said, you know, if you do a good job over soaking, say after you slit the bags, you'd run a couple of irrigation cycles through, you may not need to, to have that pH drop. So it just depends on what your irrigation system looks like on what is easiest for you to do. Uh, getting back to the question, sorry, I got kind of sidetracked there. Um, Check out, check out your leaf tissue analysis. Uh, that's going to give you an idea of what the plants are eating um, and why that pH imbalance is, is coming into your runoff. Uh, sometimes, you know, if you're going from a 5.6 to a 6.2, you're probably just right at the edge of being concerned on how it can affect your plant growth. You know, usually we'll, we'll see some amount of drift in, in pH and, and that's inevitable uh, in, in anything but an absolutely perfect system. It's going to become really come down to what, um, what nutrients you're using and what strains that you're growing on how they eat the different elements in the nutrients. So the best thing you can do there is get a leaf uh, a tissue analysis analysis and, and just check in on if it, that plant specifically is, uh, preferring cations or anions. Awesome. Thanks for that, Jason. Um, so yeah, we had a bunch of questions come in, uh, in that time also, uh, iron armor wants to know when going from uh, an LED veg room to an HPS flower room, should I be matching the DLI from veg to flower or should I be roughly matching the PPFD because of the change in spectrum? I would go with DLI. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, at this point, most of our LED manufacturers make pretty good LEDs for both veg and for flower. I know some of them out there have even selectable spectrums so that you can help the the plant use light, uh, the, the right ratios during the, the times, uh, in other industries. And we're seeing it pretty commonly with most cannabis plants right now is that more, more blue light does help early plants develop roots, um, stems, stalks, the infrastructure, you know, the vegetative type of growth that we're trying to, to hit as hard as possible during veg. And then a lot of times when we get towards the end of, of ripening, just like, uh, natural mimicry, the little bit farther red helps the plant develop its terpene profiles, finish off and ripen the buds as well. So you've probably got a great track using LEDs and veg is going to help you cut that veg time um, using HPSs because it's what you have in flower. Definitely, definitely a good route to go. Um, I would use DLI and, and that's simply because, you know, when we are hitting those different um, chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B, it's really going to be the, the sum of photons that's hitting the plant. And so when we drop our light cycle from an 18, six to a 12, 12 cycle, obviously we have about what a third, you know, 33 less, uh, 33% less time under the lights. And we want to make sure that that plant is keeping up with the growth rate that it has come out of veg at, which means we need to get it the same amount of energy. You know, when we look at the basic process of photosynthesis it's co2 plus water catalyzed by light turns us into digestible sugars that the plant makes its biomass from and so you definitely want to make sure that you're not dropping out light at a point in time where you can definitely um, make make time make plant with uh, with what's coming into it you know as far as how much people want to ramp up after they've gone into flower i've seen a lot of different tactics here. You have a lot of people that, you know, say that, Hey, we need to, you know, baby these plants going into flower. A cannabis plant is a very light hungry 
uh, type of plant. So usually I only try to step the lights up maybe once or twice. So as I'm coming out of veg, I'll match the DLI in my flower, which means that my PPFD needs to be about 33% higher the first day of flower. And then I'll usually try and step up to uh, full intensity in you know, five to 10 days, depending on how big that step is based on my lights. Awesome. Thanks. Um, so yeah, we have a ton of questions over on YouTube. Dan wrote in and wants to know, hi, could you discuss ways to minimize plant touches? I've been growing in rock wool with drip irrigation for a few runs now, and my leaves are growing so fast and big that I have to defoliate every week. <laughs> oh, the good problems. Um, yeah, ways to reduce plant touching. Well, I think obviously it depends on some of the practices that you're doing now using, uh, the right substrate sizes is one way to do it. So making sure that we're not doing something like a four by four block on a six by six block or, uh, making sure that we're, we're vegging in the right size substrate and we're going into flower on top of the right size substrate. Some of the ways that you can help by, you know, help to not have too much, um, foliage is using some of the crop stirring techniques that we talk about. So making sure that we're not pushing the plant overly vegetative and that's just going to help encourage node spacing, uh, encourage that the plant hits the plant height that we want to at the right time to do that. Um, and then obviously get an idea of, you know, what your light penetration is. Anytime that we, uh, are at a good light penetration, we're going to be able to control some of that node spacing with our irrigation. Uh, you know, if we're doing too, too low a light, then a lot of times we'll have plants that stretch much more than we want and, or make more leaves than we're, we're desiring. That plant is trying to harvest as much light as it can. And, uh, so making sure that your environmental factors are right is, is one way to do it. Um, and then some of it kind of comes down to, What's, what's the, the cost of the labor versus, you know, what's, what do you gain by reducing some of that lower stems? You know, I've worked with clients that uh, do sea of green type of application where they're very heavy on the deleafing and they're trying to get as much A buds as possible. And while that's great, uh, every input is a cost. And so if we can use uh, techniques to reduce our labor, make sure that all of our, our nutrients and energy are turning into some type of sellable product. Maybe, maybe it's worth it in the end to possibly, you know, do a quick machine trimming to, to get the larvae stuff off that and then allow our trim teams to, to process the A buds, um, sell out the larf to, you know, either a, a Snicklefritz brand or, uh, you know, a, a swag product and then, um, make the most of it. And so it really kind of comes down to what some of your distribution looks like and some of your labor staff, you know, how much does labor cost where you're at? How effective are your teams? Um, obviously making sure that you are deleafing the right parts of the plant are, are some of the ways that can help. Awesome. And make it easy, yeah. make it easy for your people to work. Uh, I guess that's not specifically related to how you reduce the plant touching, but you can reduce the time that plant touching takes by, you know, making sure that your benches are rolling well, that your aisles aren't so tight that people can't walk past each other to um, get rid of the, the waste product. Uh, you know, if, if labor is one of your concerns, make sure the facility is as ergonomic as possible so that your team can work effectively. 
That is a great note. Uh, ergonomics can add to efficiency. That was my last job. Um, enough about office chairs. Um, so yeah, we have some more questions over on YouTube. Jason wrote in. Aha, uh-huh. hi, another Jason. Um, they're from South Africa. I found fusarium in some trees. How do I deal with it preventatively for the next run? Um, fusarium. So you know, some of the the rot. It's usually related to some some root. Um, issues. Uh, a couple things that you can make sure that you're using a sterilized media. Uh, obviously rock wool and cocoa these days are on the top of it. You know, they've got very low organic matter. Um, both of them are sterilized usually for most all manufacturers when you get them. Making sure that you're uh, using clean tools so that you have sanitized uh, cloning practices that these diseases aren't transferring from um, mother to clone. And um, kind of on that same route, you know, if you are still using hard pots, you're going to have to clean them. Um, it's probably one of the, my least favorite jobs in a, in a facility is, is cleaning out hard pots. And so I always encourage people to move away from them if, if they have the opportunity to do so and move into, um, cocoa bags or, or rock wool slabs. Uh, another thing that you can do is also making sure that you're creating a healthy aerobic root zone. So in any time that we see in black roots, roots that aren't just beautifully white, a lot of times that's related to uh, a lack of oxygen in the substrate. And there's really the two easiest ways to make sure that you are getting the right uh, oxygen in the substrate is by using low flow drip emitters so that we're irrigating in smaller pulses. It's allowing for the block to act like a vacuum. Every time we irrigate, it's going to pull fresh oxygen in behind that irrigation And then another thing is making sure that your uh, irrigation has as high a dissolved oxygen as you can to support the the healthy root zone. And, you know, there's a number of ways people do that, you know, nano bubblers and um, air stones in their irrigation tanks. Really the easiest is making sure that the air tip or the water temperature of your uh, irrigation lines isn't too warm and isn't too cold. That way we can one, keep the dissolved oxygen as high as possible. Um, ratio of dissolved oxygen, the solubility of any gas in a liquid decreases as the temperature of the liquid goes up. Um, and so, you know, if we're keeping it, you know, I'm saying that 67 degrees range, that's usually going to be about right for not shocking the roots and, and maintaining a, a higher dissolved oxygen. We love a healthy root zone. Awesome. Yeah, that's it for the questions over on YouTube for now. Um, So I'm going to pass it back over to you, Keisha. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mandy. And uh, one of my favorite things about all of these platforms that we're on, there's a lot of resource sharing happening on YouTube. So we love that. Love seeing the conversations going. Diane posted a comment here. Too much nitrogen can cause you uh, to defoliate. That often also is pertaining to that earlier question. Um, So thank you for that, Diane. And then also our teammate, Rachel, shout out to Rachel. Good to see you. Um, Clarified the states that Arroyo work, Arroyo's metric integration is currently available. So I wanted to clarify for everybody. That's in California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Maryland, Maine, Michigan, Montana, Nevada, and Oklahoma. Woo. All right. Thank you, Rachel. Yes. Takes a village, y'all. All right. Moving on to the next uh, write-in question here. This one came in from Terp Daddy. They wrote in, does giving multiple irrigation signals to the plant in veg versus giving huge drybacks and then completely saturating the pot increase or decrease metabolism in the plant? Yeah. So 
always going to start off here by talking about a, a balance. Um, and in veg, usually we're going to shoot for a little bit smaller dry bags. Yes, irrigation events do trigger uh, plant growth. And so in general, we'll want to have a little bit wider irrigation window. We'll want to do multiple shots. Um, you know, say if the plant can take it, you know, six to eight might be a decent place to start in, in veg. And that's just going to depend on how old the plant is and um, how big of the substrate that you are using. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it, it is a balance. We do want that plant to build biomass as fast as possible, stem stalks and other things so that we can flip it a little bit. Um, I know it's, it's a little bit vague, but you know, we've got so many factors in there as far as is the environment, right? Is our substrate size appropriate for the size of plant that we're going? Are we vegging too long? Um, and we need to get those plants into a, a flowering stage and, um, start to push them more generatively and decrease that in irrigation window and, and decrease the number of, of shots. But typically, uh, yes, you're right. We'll want to have more smaller shots when we're trying to steer vegetatively. Uh, and that does include during the, the veg phases as well. The early veg 18, six light cycle. Beautiful. Thank you, Jason. Diane, we see your comment here. Low light level also will, t it's going to turn out too much leaves. So that's another uh, dropping some more knowledge here. Love that. All right, Mandy, I know we got more live questions from YouTube. Sending it over to you. Oh yeah, it's popping over there. Um, so Ismail wrote in, where can I find a feeding schedule uh, for irrigation times for both veg and flower? Automation is new to me and I've been following for a while now and I've just begun getting more and more into it. I'm hearing different things everywhere I look. Love y'all. Thanks. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go out there and just tell you where I like to see some of the information and um, some of it does disagree that probably the absolute best starter irrigation schedules come right from Grodan. Surprisingly enough, that's your uh, substrate manufacturer and they have some pretty nice white papers on on how to how to get stuff growing. Uh, I also like the Floraflex tech support um, Instagram. They do a fairly good job walking through the introdu introductory steps to uh, P1 and P2 irrigations and how that can affect uh, plant growth and give you kind of an idea on, on how to make the calculations. Um, you know, we, we do, if you're an Arroy customer, we've got, uh, we've got our cultivation quick start guide, which probably should have been my first answer. Um, but that's okay. And then, you know, I think there's some other companies out there. If maybe we've seen front row, Athena, some of those guys are starting to produce some materials in there to help everyone utilize their products. Um, there's a ton of information out there. Really, if you just Google search uh, crop steering or, or irrigation strategies, cannabis, um, you're going to get it. And uh, really, the best thing that you can do is read from multiple sources before you begin. That's because there is no exact right strategy. Uh, so when we start with how we want to get it done, we have to kind of a tick accumulation of how are all these other companies recommending this to work and how does that fit my specific application? You know, are my light levels going to keep up with transpiration rates that are described in the white paper that talks about what their transpiration rates are, right? Um, some of this stuff is based on an outdoor where we might have extremely high PPFD. Uh, some of it might be using a, a different substrate size or substrate type. Some of it might not be at the nutrient levels that, that you need to be at. So, you know, the best thing you can do is use your tools uh, to, to build the knowledge that you're at um, and then reassess using those tools and, and see, did I make an improvement? Have I decreased it? 
how many things did I change? Which one of them made the difference? And so I usually try to help people not get too excited about making all the right choices at once, if you will. Um, before you begin, try and try and get the the best solution that you know how. And uh, obviously, since you're asking questions here, use our resources as well. Watch office hours for as many hours as you'd like. Um, I'm sure that there's a, a ton of things in here that can help anyone get started on the right irrigation schedule. Uh, early in the show, I, we probably did 10 or 15 episodes specifically dedicated to crop steering and talking about P1s and P2s and how you can uh, evaluate how many shots, the right size of shots and the timing of those shots for your application. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Um, we got a couple more questions over on YouTube. Iron Armor wants to know, as for climate from transitioning from LED veg to HPS flower, should I be adjusting the flower room's temperature and relative humidity to match the leaf surface temperature and room's VPD um, to what it was in veg? It's probably not a bad route to go. Um, I, I would definitely probably be a little bit cooler. Uh, as just a starting baseline. And, and that's simply because that plant's going to feel slightly uh, hotter environment, even if our temperature is, is been dropped uh, in that, in that HPS. So that's that um, radiation to room temperature ratio that we'll talk about. Some more advanced agronomic books do talk about this as well. It's nothing that's new and specific um, in agriculture. Uh, it's just that a lot of times for, for indoor growers, it's not something that we have thought of for cannabis. So definitely make sure that um, you are taking that route. You, you know, might not need to drop it all the way to match perfectly, um, but that would be the starting point I would go for. Awesome. Thanks for that advice. Um, Diane has a couple of questions about boron. So what's a good boron level for my tissue analysis? And the second question is for how, uh, how much boron should we aim for in stretch? Um, you know, I, I, I can't give you exact numbers for, for the boron concentration on, on that. Uh, Best thing that you can do is document what those boron levels differentiate between different runs and which runs match the plant morphology that you want. Awesome. Diane, yeah, you'll have to let us know um, if you find any resources out there, but um, yeah, let us know. Uh, that's it for YouTube right now. So Keisha, I'm going to pass it back over to you. Thank you, Mandy. All right. The, the questions are coming fast and furious. And just a reminder to those who are on Hangouts, now's your chance. We got 20 minutes left in the final episode of 2022. So drop your questions in the chat. And let's get them answered. All right. I'm going to ask this one. Northern Grown Turs asked, what does a proper flush look like? That seemed like a fun one to talk about in the last episode of the year. Thoughts All right. on that, Yeah. Uh, so... A proper flush doesn't use the term flush uh, because I think there's so much different uh, usage or application of what people mean when they say flush. Uh, I'd like to call it ripening. For some people, what I say is ripening is exactly what they're doing for flush. Uh, the, the thing that I like to use ripening is because I'm talking about the goal in the plant and there are many strategies to get to that goal. And uh, a lot of it actually has to do with getting the plant to the right age, using the right environment at those points, and not specifically what you do exactly when 
you get to the ripening stage. Um, for me, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna like to keep that VPD up at say 1.4 just to help me avoid any um, molds, mildews, botrytis towards uh, towards the end of the cycle when I'm most liable to to get that. Obviously, when I've got huge coals and stuff, it's uh, it's a time where we need to keep it a little bit drier just to optimize our chances of having a, a fully harvestable crop. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't like flush is because a lot of people historically have gone to no nutrient content in their, um, in their irrigation when, when they say that. And so that's usually definitely not what you want to do. Um, that big of change is going to starve your plants out. It can build necro- necrotic sites in those big colas and encourage, um, some of the, um, pests and, and molds and mildews to, to be attracted towards the bud. Um, you know, another thing about going to no nutrients is it's such a quick change to the plant that, uh, you're not going to see positive results. So usually I like to, you know, kind of taper it down towards the end of, end of the cycle. And depending on how, how long the cycle is, it might be anywhere from say five days to 10 or 12 days. Uh, a lot of times we'll talk about half or three quarters, um, nutrient levels. Uh, we've seen some people that actually adjust their nutrient balances and really try and, and taper out, make sure that there's no nitrogen in, in the uh, irrigation towards the end. But we do want to make sure that plant has food. That's a perfect segue into this next question here, which was submitted by French Flair. They wrote in, what is the impact on the nutrients on the yield? And they wrote cannabis nutrients versus agriculture. Well, uh, if I, I mean, if I hear that right, cannabis nutrients are just a specific, specific, whew, specific blend of nutrients. And uh, uh, most big, big agriculture, they just have their nutrients blended custom for specific different plant types, um, for different specific uh, application methods. and cannabis a lot of the companies they're just getting a custom blend that they know works well for cannabis in specific so it's not like there's really anything different in the actual elements um into the the molecules it just comes down to the the blend rates and the concentrations of of those molecules and uh simply because you know i'm not a nutrient scientist i like to usually just tell people the brands that we see customers be successful with and uh and if they have an agricultural scientist that you know does nutrients and chemistry then um you know feel free to source source your elements and make do your own blending uh that's what the nutrient companies do for the people that buy the chemicals from them awesome jason killing it as usual thank you so much all right mandy we got youtube questions oh yeah you know we do um craig wants to know when daily drybacks and generative steering exceed the medium's ability to stay above an extreme low volumetric water content, um, so 35 to 40% in rock wool, are less larger shot size or more smaller um, to bring wa- volumetric water content up enough to not have to P3? Let me know if you want to hear that again. No, I, I got it. Um you know, if, if you are there, then you might be growing too big of plants for the size of substrate that you're in. Um, and so kind of think about that going forward, you know, almost any time that you hear Seth and I talk about, uh, solutions to solve problems, it comes down to why are we dealing with this problem rather than what can we do right now to make things better? 
Um, I would probably go with, you know, more smaller shots, um, just to try and keep that water content up a little up towards the top, a little bit higher. Uh, obviously that's going to be steering your plant less generative. Um, so if you are in generative steering, just keep in mind, Hey, my substrate is limiting me on the control I have over this plant's morphology. Super important stuff to keep in mind. Yeah, you'll have to let us know if you have any more follow-ups. Um, but yeah, I'm going to kick it back over to you, Keisha. Doing it here. All right, folks. We got a few minutes left in the show. Live, folks. Now's the time. Type in your questions. Um, this came in from Drunk Norm Nomad 420. I love the handles. They want to know when in vegetative bulk, is it important to achieve 30% runoff? It's going to depend on your media a little bit. Like 30 pretty high. That's, those are hungry plants. If you're in the right size substrate, uh, kind of coming off of our last question, you might, you know, you might have a plant substrate size mix mismatch where you're just pushing it, you know, way too hard. Um, that being said, you know, big dry bags during veg bulking means that that plant is utilizing uh, a lot of a lot of nutrients and, and water as far as percentage goes. Um, obviously if I'm growing a six foot plant in my little cup here, a 30% dryback would mean that I still am not getting anywhere near enough water and nutrients to optimize that plant. That's why we talk about uh, optimal substrate sizes, making sure that we can modulate in the appropriate water content ranges and still get the, the amount of plant that we want to grow. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Jason. All right. We've got a good one from Demo Grown here. They wanted to know what's the best way to steer their crops the last few few days of flow, say day 45 through 63. And then they list here VPD and temp. So I don't know if they're looking for some ranges there. But yeah, what are your thoughts? Best way to steer crops the last few days of flow? Uh yeah, I mean, kind of goes down to what we were talking about with riping. I mostly just hit on uh, irrigation there, you know, for environments being in, say, 1.4 would be the type of uh, VPD that I try to hit. Um, obviously, at night, you can have a little bit lower VPD. Just really try to avoid uh, VPD swings, especially towards the end. I mean, those are the those are the kinds of things that, that can get you into trouble. And the reason that I do mention that was because of uh, night, day, temperature differentials and depending on uh, you know what kind of strain that you're running and how much purpling you need into it uh, that night day differential usually when it's increased it'll help the plant produce anthocyanins and that's what's responsible for the purpling color in cannabis and also in things like blueberries and huckleberries um, and in a lot of markets right now especially it is a more desirable product. And so we'll see, you know, 10 degree, maybe a little bit more than that night day differentials. And you want to make sure that you're modulating your uh, humidity to keep those VPDs nice when you are doing that big of a change. And obviously when we, when we do that, if we can taper it, if our systems allow us to taper it rather than, you know, going from, Hey, we're at 75 and now we're at 65. Um, and maybe we saw, you know, 10 or 15, percent humidity change let's taper those out over an hour or two hours if we can just to kind of help the environment uh, attribute to it there's some interesting literature on on tomatoes on how actually you know doing that at specific times in relationship to lights on lights off have um, enabled people to get slightly more biomass on their products but uh, you know, into, until we get a little bit deeper into the science of cannabis, um, 
probably probably nothing that I'd get too wild about unless you got a good R and D room and you've read a lot of those tomato papers. Always learning, never stops, right? All right, we're gonna keep going here. Drunk Nomad wrote in. Oh wait, sorry, Mandy. Yes, YouTube. What's going oh, on there? Yeah, we just had a follow up from Craig uh, about his daily drybacks. Um, so he says next round uh, has half the veg time. Thanks so much. I've been giving fewer shots, so we'll change tomorrow. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. All right, back to you, Keisha. Changing lives over here. I love it. Okay. Drunk Nomad wrote in, how often should I water when using Royal Gold Tupper as my substrate? I hadn't heard of that particular substrate before, so I thought that was a cool question. What are your thoughts, Jason? Uh, I've grown a lot of cannabis in Royal Gold, Royal Gold Tupper and uh, think that you're going to need to use some sensors and watch what your water contents are and what your transpiration rates, the, the dry down in there is as far as the number and the amount of irrigation kind of just comes down to our, our fairly basic P1, P2 irrigation strategies. Are we trying to, trying to build um, infrastructure so that we have enough plant to produce as much bud as possible, or are we trying to produce more buds because uh, we've got the infrastructure that we need? Sorry, too many windows open. I feel like that's probably a general rule of thumb for any substrate. No, Jason? Yep, for, for any substrate. Um, and that's kind of why uh, looking at water content and EC is such a universal tool. Um, anytime that we have some type of media that we're growing with, we want to be making sure that we're staying in the ranges that keep that media effective. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Over back to you, Mandy. Man, so many questions today. Uh, so Diane has a question. Can I switch from calcium nitrate to calcium sulfate after stretch? Because my plants won't need that much nitrogen after stretch. Uh, I mean, you can, it, you know, it's something that you, you might uh, do a little uh, blend or, or mixing with and, and not do an, an instant change. And best thing that you can do is document, hey, here's when I did it. Here's how much I changed of it. Um, and, and without limiting some of the sources of those chemicals as well, and just get an idea of uh, how that affected your plant growth. So give it a shot. I personally haven't, so I can't, I can't tell you all about documenting and living and learning. All right, back over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. All right, we got to write in here from Guatemala. Um, Andres420 wrote in, can't get fully white ashes. I use RO water to flush and reach 73 ppm, but not enough. I use general hydroponics because he's in Guatemala. We're not there. So wanted to get your thoughts. What, do you, what, what, what advice can we share with Andres420? Um, you know, just making sure that you are harvesting at the right time is probably one of the, the easiest ways to do it. Um, obviously some results have shown that making sure that you've decreased the amount of nitrogen in towards the end. Um, you know, the, the white ash thing is, I think a lot of times where people do want to go to straight RO, um, that's not how we like to, to solve it because we don't want to jeopardize the, the chance of, um, of crop crop loss due to uh, plant starvation and necro necrotic sites in the buds. Um, so 
yeah, I, I would probably keep feeding it nutrients and maybe just modify uh, that plant uptake with a, a little bit higher pH or a little bit of an adjustment to your nutrient blend. Obviously, if you are just using um, some general hydro pre-mixed um, nutrients, you may or may not have an easy option to, to taper out something like nitrogen. Awesome. Thank you for that, Jason. Good luck, Andres. Keep us posted. Let us know how we can help. Okay. Um, Fire Station wrote in, when do you start the elevated EC levels prior to stretch? Looking for some advice there. Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, prior to stretch, so like if we're coming out of veg, uh, I guess it's, that's probably what it's talking about here. Like, you know, rooting in um, periods when we're, we're getting into a new media. And it, most of our system, we don't usually recommend people do too many uh, EC adjustments. Uh, we like to use the actual crop steering techniques to modify the uh, EC in the substrate itself. So if we got a much bigger dryback, then our daily EC in the substrate is going to be higher simply because we're not pushing it out with fresh nutrients. We're allowing um, a little bit of nutrient buildup. And so you know, when we talk about generative sacking, that's exactly when we're talking about it. And if we if we're transplanting right at right when we start flower. So our plants are going onto a bigger substrate, right? At 1212, usually we'll run, run through, um, you know, three to five days of, of root in and, and dry down, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, maybe seven days if you need a little bit bigger dry down. And then that's right when we'll go into, uh, generative stacking and letting that EC build up in the substrate simply by reducing the time that we're irrigating and reducing some of our runoff. So um, you know, feed ECs are going to depend on the nutrients that you're using, um, light sources and environmental factors. And, uh, historically we've seen that higher ECs in the plant can have benefits at, at this point, um, just based on some of the qualities of the nutrients versus what maybe 10 years ago people were doing in, in their medias. And so, um, yeah. And get a system that can tell you what those ECs are over time. Because you know, when we talk about uh, ECs, sure, feed ECs, pretty easy to capture, right? When we're looking at nutrients and solution, uh, they're not going to change too much unless we change the rate that we're injecting them to, um, or we add more in a batch tank, for example. Whereas the nutrients in our substrate is always going to be dynamic, as our plants are using up water content, we're going to see some concentration of those nutrients usually go up. For already low in nutrients, we actually might see it go down if the plant is eating nutrients faster than the um, concentration is increasing due to water content loss. And so having uh, an idea of what those trends look like, one, it gives you exactly knowledge of what the plant is feeling in the substrate, what your EC at the plant is. And then two, how you can best modulate your practices in order to get those ECs where you want them. Thank you for that, Jason. You know, this episode is really, uh, we're, we're talking a lot about substrates. So this is great. Um, great way to close it out. All right. I have one more question. It's a multi-parter. I'm going to read the whole thing. If you need me to break it down, I'll break it down. All right, here we go. Dave Ray wrote in, I'm trying charcoal bio pot compressed cocoa, three liter pots next round. Any experience with these? They stay stabilized for pH six to 6.5 and that they're high CEC. 
what feed pH should I be aiming for? And then he's just wondering any other tips going straight from clone into them, quick few eat veg, then flour. Should I be targeting the same drybacks for, for pro mix and three gallon pots as I would in cocoa? I'm able to get 1% drybacks per hour currently during the day, day 2020. Day 22 of flower. Side note, my peak moisture I'm able to achieve is 44%. Low on the day, uh, lower of the days has been the nine, has been 19%. Do I need to rewind a little bit? Break that down. I think I've got most of it. Uh, we'll just start off with the, some of the easy ones. Um, yeah, charcoal's been a pretty long-term producer of of cocoa, and you know for the, for the most part they they're pretty well regarded. So not, not a bad product to use. I don't know that they're the most popular with, um, really high quality growers right now, but, uh, they've, they've definitely proven their value, uh, in, in the industry and, uh, you know, pH, as far as going into cocoa, usually I like to be about 5.8 to 6.0. Um, maybe get a little bit higher towards the end of the cycle, just to, to help the nutrient balance in the plant, um, stay where we want it to be. And so, uh, yeah, next question for how, how is that different than something like, um, you know, pro mix one, you're not filling pots. Um, that's definitely nice. Uh, you know, I, I think in, in application, there really shouldn't be that many differences. You're definitely going to see some changes as far as how that water is retained and how the nutrients build or release from the substrate. Uh, the best thing you can do is use time series data. I use a system like Arroyo that gives you an idea on how you can adjust that for growth parameters that are similar to what you're used to. Amazing. Thank you, Jason. All right. Normally we would close down the show, but we had a couple more questions and on YouTube, Mandy, can we take them? Can we get it? Get it in? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you guys know I can talk fast. Okay. So Craig wants to know, can I assume when runoff first occurs that the heavier elements in solution are more likely to be washed out before the lighter ones, having problems keeping calcium levels up and nitrogen down with cal uh, CaNO3? I, I think that you know what that means. Uh, I mean, one, one aspect is going to be, yeah, how long has that nutrient been into the the rock wool like how long since it was blended in um in solution so if you are hitting a lot of shots in a, in a short duration there's a chance that the um some of those haven't settled yet and towards the bottom but uh i mean probably gonna be a little bit a little bit heavier nutrients are gonna settle towards the bottom just because of gravity not something i've actually specifically really ever looked at or or thought of um if our plants have a well-established root zone, I don't think it's going to matter. Um, the plants will actually grow roots in the most preferential uh, solution possible. If So if I had uh, two cups here and the plant was right in the middle with some roots in both sides, I could modulate the EC of either cup and the plant's going to grow more roots in the one that it prefers. Um, so kind of kind of a fun experiment, uh, you know, if you want to see it in application. So, you know, as far as how that actually, you know, affects the roots, probably not a ton. Um, sure. It's going to affect the nutrient balance and the EC levels. If we're on a very, very low runoff amount, um, keeping an eye on your pH is how you're going to know if this is actually happening or not. Um, and making sure that you have leaf tissue analysis to say, all right, well, I'm seeing this happen, even though my, my plant tissue is showing uh, a healthy balance and you can use, you know, sap, 
SAP analysis as well too. Um, really just whatever you're used to using, what you have documented and what's most available for um, you to get those tests done. Awesome. Thanks for that. Oh yeah. We're, uh, we're rounding on our hour and we have two more questions. They're both from Kevin over on YouTube. So he wants to know what humidity do you go for when curing the flowers in jars after the 12 to 14 day dry? We'll start with that one. Uh, yeah. So, you know, in a 12 to 14 day dry, we're usually shooting for, uh, a water activity, a specific number. Uh, a lot of times we'll talk about 0.58, and, uh, it does slightly depend on what your consumers prefer. Um, you know, the reason that we are looking at something like a 0.58 is just to help make sure, you know, by the time it's packaged, it hasn't gained any water content. Um, and that you're not losing more quality than you need to by over drying more weight than you need to by over drying. So in, you know, in something like a jar like that, if I have a 0.58 water activity going into the jar, then I want a 0.58 water activity during the cure cycle. And that's going to mean that I'm maintaining a water balance in there and we're not having any moisture transport between the bud and the environment that it's curing in. Awesome. Sweet and succinct. Um, so Kevin had one final up, final question. Do you recommend stacking EC and late veg a week before flower? Uh, in late veg? I mean, we could. Uh, I mean... It depends what you're trying to do with your plant heights and if you've already tra uh, transplanted or not, you know, if you've already transplanted into a, a new media, then, then you know, you, you might want to keep that media stabilized during that time frame. Um, if we're going to transplant later on, it might be nice to, you know, start to let your EC stack up a little bit so that, uh, you're ready for the ECs that you're hitting in flower. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of nutrient brands are also recommending that people have higher ECs, uh, during their veg, uh, you know, especially if they are vegging in LEDs. So really kind of just depends on, on what your targets are, uh, what your room parameters are in order to make the balance. Obviously we don't want to make changes too fast. Um, but if we're looking to alter plant morphology, then that that's an option. Awesome. Thanks for that. And that will be it for us over on YouTube. Thank you guys so much for all your questions and shout outs. Keisha, I'm going to pass it back to you. That's the truth. Thank you to everybody on YouTube. Thank you to everybody on Hangouts today. Anybody who's watching this later on, we really appreciate you. Jason, you, you killed it. Thank you so much for answering all of these questions today. Shout out to Seth. He was traveling today and not able to make it in time. Um, and then of course, Mandy, I could not do this without you. And also thank you for bringing the holiday spirit with our decorations. Um, you know, we do this every Thursday. This is our last session of the year, but you know, the best way to get uh, answers is to join us live and hope you'll continue to join us for Office Hours Live into 2023. If you're looking to learn more about Arroyo, book a demo and our experts will walk you through all the ways it can help improve your cultivation production process. And of course, if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in Office Hours, um, feel free to post questions anytime via the Arroyo app. Um, drop them in the chat anytime. Send us an email to support.arroyo at metergroup.com. And of course, a DM over Instagram, send us a message on Social Club. We are on all the socials. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance and link to uh, today's show. It'll live on our Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. If you find these conversations helpful, please do share with your network, spread the word. That's a wrap for 2022. Happy, happy holidays, everybody. And we'll see you in January of 2023.
Bye. Nice work, team. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.